Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. This past week, I broke for you news that few in the English-speaking world seem to be talking about. That Francis is, according to the Jesuits, going to issue a document rescinding human humanae vitae. He'll either do this explicitly or through the typical death by a thousand cuts of creating exceptions that will appear on paper to affect few people, but will in reality be exploited by the vast majority of interested Catholics. This announcement was made simultaneously in two Jesuit outlets, including in Lotavilita Cattolica, which is a very important outlet in the church, and of course in America Magazine. The former outlet is heavily vetted by Rome. Nothing gets into that journal without Vatican approval. Once you understand that, you understand why this report should be taken extremely seriously. This seemed to have been lost on many people, but that's fine. When this move by Francis comes down from on high, I, and I'm sure all the others you like to watch, will happily report on it, or more likely unhappily (laughs) report on it. But to understand why this is functionally not even necessary is also important. Most Catholics already use chemical barriers to fulfilling God's great command to be fruitful and multiply, and they've been taught that they can do this through the use of their own personal conscience. They forget that it's supposed to be through the use of their well-formed conscience, well-formed in the teachings of the church. When your conscience is well-formed in the teachings of the church, you will not defy what the church says. You may defy bad prelates, you may resist them because of what the church actually teaches, but you won't actually resist church teaching. People forget that. This has been the case in practice since Humanae Vitae on this issue. Catholics around the world cite their personal conscience to avoid following God's great law, showing both a distorted understanding of the respect for personal conscience that the church has always had in the state of catechesis that has existed in the church since the 1960s at least, if not longer, because our modern problems in the church go back well before the council. But this disobedience to God's law received a formal imprimatur from one conference of bishops in the church after Humanae Vitae was released, and its effect has been felt outside of the borders of that country, far outside the borders of that country. I'm talking about the infamous Winnipeg Statement, which was a formal rebuke of Humanae Vitae, issued by the bishops of Canada, that told the lady of Canada, and by extension any layperson who read the statement anywhere, that they were not bound to follow the Pope's teaching on this issue if their personal conscience told them otherwise. And it was diabolical in nature because it was wrapped up in Catholic-sounding language. The entire document sounds very Catholic, except for in about four paragraphs. But it is in those four paragraphs where error abounds. And the result has been catastrophic. For context, Humanae Vitae was released in the summer of 1968, a time of revolutionary upheaval in the social order across the Western world. Familiar norms were being destroyed, fueled by an unpopular war, and cataclysmic changes in the culture, including the sudden loss of the Legion of Decency and the Hollywood breaking the production code, allowing for increased impurity on the big screen. 
Canada at this time was pushing for going from a total ban on the Moloch ritual to under the leadership of alleged Catholic Pierre Trudeau to embrace the Moloch ritual. At this time, the Canadian bishops met in secret to issue a response to Humanae Vitae, openly telling the laity they could disobey the Pope's teaching on that issue. This was made possible by one error promoted by the Second Vatican Council, collegiality, which places the bishops and their conferences on a near parity level of importance with the Supreme Pontiff. I have for you the Winnipeg Statement in full. It's galling, to say the least. Remember, most of this sounds very Catholic. They go out of their way to make this sound very Catholic. Throughout the document, I will pause at various points to tell you where the troubling paragraphs are. They are best understood in the full context of the document. Otherwise, I would have just read you those paragraphs. <laughs> anyway, we'll, give, we'll get to the consequences of the Winnipeg Statement after the document. It's worth noting here that the Winnipeg Statement begins by including the full text of Humanae Vitae, which I won't bother reading here. But the it, it's worth paying attention to certain paragraphs, including paragraphs 17, 25, 26, and 34. They are w widely considered the most objectionable parts of the Winnipeg Statement, because a lot of this will, of course, sound fine, because that's how the modernists do things. They wrap their errors up in Catholic-sounding language. Without further ado, the Winnipeg Statement. Pope Paul VI, in his recent encyclical on human life, has spoken on a profound human problem, as is clearly evidenced by the immediate and universal reaction to his message. It is evident that he has written out of concern and love, and in a spirit of service to all mankind. Conscience of the current controversy and deep differences of opinion as to how to harmonize married love and the responsible transmission of life, we, the Canadian bishops, offer our help to the priests and Catholic people believing it to be their pastoral duty. 1. Solidarity with the Pope We are in accord with the teaching of the Holy Father concerning the dignity of the nuptial life and the necessity of a truly Christian relationship between conjugal love and responsible parenthood. We share the pastoral concern which has led him to offer counsel and direction in an area which, while controverted, could hardly be more important to human happiness. By divine commission, clarification of these difficult problems of morality is required from the teaching authority of the Church. The Canadian bishops will endeavor to discharge their obligation to the best of their ability. In this pursuit, we are acting consistently with our recent submissions to the federal government on chemical barriers to being fruitful, the breaking of the nuptial sacrament, and the uh, Moloch ritual. Nor is there anything in those submissions which does not harmonize with the encyclical. Sorry, I can't help but laugh when I say that. Part two, solidarity with the faithful. In the same spirit of solidarity, we declare ourselves one with the people of God in the difficulties they experience in understanding, making their own, and living this teaching. In accord with the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, the recent encyclical recognizes the nobility of conjugal love, which is uniquely expressed and perfected through the marital act. Many people in the sacramental bond experience a truly agonizing difficulty in reconciling the need to express conjugal love with the responsible transmission of life. This difficulty is recognized in deep sympathy and is shared by bishops and priests as counselors and confessors in their service of the faithful. We know that we are unable to provide easy answers to this difficult problem, made more acute by the great variety of solutions proposed in an open society. 
A clearer understanding of these problems and progress toward their solution will result from a common effort and dialogue, research and study on the part of all, laity, priests, and bishops, guided by faith and sustained by grace. To this undertaking, the Canadian bishops pledge themselves. Part 3. Christian Conscience and Divine Law Of recent years, many have entertained doubts about the validity of arguments proposed to forbid any positive intervention which would prevent the transmission of life. As a result, there have arisen opinions and practices contrary to traditional moral theology. Because of this, many had been expecting official confirmation of their views. This helps to explain the negative reaction to the encyclical received in many quarters. Many Catholics face a grave problem of conscience. Christian theology regarding conscience has its roots in the teaching of St. Paul. This was echoed in our day by Vatican II. Quote, Conscience is the most secret core and sanctuary of man. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. On his part, man acknowledges the imperatives of the divine law through the mediation of conscience. In all his activity, a man is bound to follow his conscience faithfully, in order that he may come to God for whom he was created. The dignity of man consists precisely in his ability to achieve his fulfillment in God through the exercise of a knowing and free choice. However, this does not exempt a man from the responsibility of forming his conscience according to truly Christian values and principles. This implies a spirit of openness to the teaching of the church, which is an essential aspect of Christians' baptismal vocation. It likewise implies sound personal motivation, free from selfishness and undue external pressure, which are incompatible with the spirit of Christ, nor will he succeed in this difficult task without the help of God. Man is prone to sin and evil unless he humbly asks and gratefully receives the grace of God. This basic freedom will inevitably lead to abuse. Part 4. Teaching Office of the Church Belief in the Church, which is the prolongation of Christ in the world, belief in the Incarnation, demands a cheerful readiness to hear that church to whose first apostles Christ said, He who hears you hears me. True freedom of conscience does not consist, then, in the freedom to do as one likes, but rather to do as a responsible conscience directs. The Second Vatican Council applies this concept forcefully. Christians, quote, therefore must always be governed according to a conscience dutifully conformed to the divine law itself and should be submissive toward the church's teaching office, which authentically interprets that law in the light of the gospel. That divine law reveals and protects the integral meaning of conjugal love and impels it towards the truly cat-human fulfillment. Today, the Holy Father has spoken on the question of morally acceptable means to harmonize conjugal love and responsible parenthood. Christians must examine in all honesty their reaction to what he has said. The church is competent to hand on the truth contained in the revealed word of God and to interpret its meaning, but its role is not limited to this function. In his pilgrimage to salvation, man achieves final happiness by his human conduct and his whole moral life. Since the church is man's guide in this pilgrimage, she is called upon to exercise her role as teacher, even in those matters which do not demand the absolute assent of faith. Of this sort of teaching, Vatican II wrote, quote, the religious submission of will and of mind must be shown in a special way to the authentic teaching authority of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. That is, it must be shown in such a way that his supreme teaching service is acknowledged with reverence. The judgments made by him are sincerely adhered to according to his manifest mind and will, end quote. It follows that those who have been commissioned by the church to teach in her name will recognize their responsibility to refrain from public opposition to the encyclical. To do otherwise would compound confusion and be a source of scandal to God's people.
However, this must not be interpreted as a restriction on the legitimate and recognized freedom of theologians to pursue loyally and conscientiously their research with a view to greater depth and clarity in the teaching of the church. I'm going to pause here with the reading of this document. We're about to hit the first of the troubling statements in this document. The following is paragraph 17. I want to bring your attention to this. It is a fact that a certain number of Catholics, although admittedly subject to the teaching of the encyclical, find it ex either extremely difficult or even impossible to make their own all elements of this doctrine. In particular, the argumentation and rational foundation of the encyclical, which are only briefly indicated, have failed in some cases to win the assent of men of science, or indeed of some men of culture and education, who share in the contemporary empirical and scientific mode of thought. We must appreciate the difficulty experienced by contemporary man in understanding and appropriating some of the points of this encyclical, and we must make every effort to learn from the insights of Catholic scientists and intellectuals who are undoubted loyalty to Christian truth, to the Church, and to the authority of the Holy See. Since they are not denying any point of divine and Catholic faith, nor rejecting the teaching authority of the Church, these Catholics should not be considered or consider themselves shut off from the body of the faithful, but they should remember that their good faith will be dependent on a sincere self-examination to determine the true motives and grounds for such suspension of assent, and on continued effort to understand and deepen their knowledge of the teaching of the church. Again, pause here. That paragraph says that essentially the teachings of the church should be should submit to the so-called scientific realities of the time. Think about the implications of that. Continuing. The difficulties of this situation have been felt by the priests of the church and by many others. We have been requested to provide guidelines to assist them. This we will endeavor to accomplish in a subsequent document. We are conscious that continuing dialogue, study, and reflection will be required by all members of the church in order to meet as best we can the complexities and exigencies of the problem. We point out that the particular norms which we may offer will prove of little value unless they are placed in the context of man's human and Christian vocation and all the values of the Christian nuptial life. This formation of conscience and this education and true love will be achieved only by a well-balanced pastoral insistence upon the primary importance of love, which is human, total, faithful, and exclusive, as well as generously faithful. Part 5. Preliminary Pastoral Guidance For the moment, in conformity with traditional Christian morality, we request priests and all who may be called to guide or counsel the consciences of others to give their attention to the following considerations. The pastoral directives given by Pope Paul VI in the encyclical are inspired by a positive sacramental approach. The Eucharist is always a great expression of Christian love and union. Couples in the nuptial bond will always find in this celebration a meeting place with the Lord, which will never fail to strengthen their own mutual love. With regard to the sacrament of penance, the spirit is one of encouragement, both of penitence and confessor, and avoids both extremes of laxity and rigorism. The encyclical suggests an attitude towards the sacrament of penance, which is at once less juridical, more pastoral, and more respectful of persons. There is real concern for their growth, however, slow at times, and for the hope of the future. Confession should never be envisaged under the cloud of agonizing fear or severity. It should be an exercise in confidence and respect of consciences. Paul VI invited married couples to, quote, have recourse with humble perseverance to the mirror of God, which is poured forth in the sacrament of penance. 
Confession is a meeting between a sincere conscience and Christ our Lord, who was indeed intransigent with evil, but merciful towards individuals, end quote. Such is the general atmosphere in which the confessor and counselor must work. We must complete the concept with a few more particular applications. Pausing here again. The next two paragraphs are considered extremely objectionable by virtually anyone with a well-formed Catholic conscience and who actually has the faith. But note that they lead into this with a call for being pastoral. Fifty-five years later, this same language is still being employed in the post-conciliar era. Fifty-five years later, nothing changes. Paragraph 25. In the situation we described earlier in this statement, paragraph 17, the confessor or counselor must show sympathetic understanding and reverence for the sincere good faith of those who fall in their effort to accept some point of the encyclical, paragraph 26. Counselors may meet others who, accepting the teaching of the Holy Father, find that because of the particular circumstances they are involved in, what seems to them a clear conflict of duties the reconciling of conjugal love and responsible parenthood with the education of children already born or with the physical well-being of the mother, in accord with the accepted principles of moral theology. If these persons have tried sincerely but without success to pursue a line of conduct in keeping with the given directives, they may be safely assured that whoever honestly chooses that course which seems right to him does so in good conscience. Okay, pause again. So what we're saying is, in the confessional, the priest is not to uphold the moral laws of God and the church, but should instead let people essentially decide for themselves what is true, good, and right in this regard, while, of course, still respecting the encyclical. You can't have it both ways. This is talking outside, out of both sides of their mouth. That is what we're hearing here. That, and we also have now an explicit permission in paragraph 26 for people to defy the law of the church on this regard. Continuing this document to the end. Good pastoral practice for other and perhaps more difficult cases will be developed in continuing communication among bishops, priests, and laity, and in particular in the document we have promised to prepare. In the meantime, we earnestly solicit the help of, of experts of various kinds into their research into this area. While it would be an illusion to hope for the solution of all human problems through scientific technology, such research can bring effective help to the alleviation and solution of problems of conscience in this area. Part 6. Invitation to Pastoral Action The whole world is conscious of the growing preoccupation with the social impact of all men's thoughts, words, and actions. The flesh, in all its aspects, is obviously an area of the greatest human and social impact. The norms and values which govern this so vital human concern merit the attention and cooperation of all. Our world evolves at a frightening rate, creating at once a vivid sense of unity and a set of conflicting forces which could destroy us. This concern will be fruitful only if it leads us all to recognize our true human worth and the possession of our inner powers, by which we are distinctly ourselves, with the full recognition of our complementary uh, fleshly differences on the physical, the psychological, and spiritual plane. Only in the manner, this manner will we achieve nuptial relationships that are truly unions of love in the service of life. To this end, there must be brought into play all the positive forces of the family, the school, the state, and the church. No one may stand aloof, nor are there really national boundaries in a matter of such universal application. 
With this in mind, we call on all members of the church to realize on every level, from the very youngest to the very possibilities of adult education. Without wishing to specify in detail, we single out for special mention a few aspects which may have richer possibilities. We place first the dialogue and cooperation, which have been so encouraging among all members of the church and through ecumenical movement with other churches. We note with deep satisfaction the spread and strength of so many activities calculated to prepare for the nuptial relationship or to deepen the appreciation of married persons of this sublime state. For example, preparation courses, family apostolates, discussion groups, etc. Educators, too, are to be commended for their growing attention to the question. Everywhere the problem of a fleshly education and family life is being studied, and this education is being happily deepened by scientific research and diffused through the creative use of mass media. Nothing less than this mobilization of all human forces will suffice to meet the challenge of divisive and destructive forces, which begin deep in the willful selfishness of man and inhibit the true expression of his love. We pledge ourselves to the pastoral priority of encouraging and promoting these programs whenever and wherever possible. Actually, one more pause. The final paragraph of this document is also considered deeply objectionable by virtually anyone with the Catholic faith who actually sees or hears this. Paragraph 34. We conclude by asking all to pray fervently that the Holy Spirit will continue to guide his church through all darkness and suffering. We, the people of God, cannot escape this hour of crisis, but there is no reason to believe that it will create division and despair. The unity of the church does not consist in a bland conformity in all ideas, but rather in a union of faith and heart, in submission to God's will and a humble but honest and ongoing search for the truth. The unity of love and faith is founded in Christ, and as long as we are true to him, nothing can separate us. We stand in union with the Bishop of Rome, the successor of Peter, the sign and contributing cause of our unity with Christ and with one another. But this very union postulates such a love of the church that we can do no less than to place all of our love and all of our intelligence at its service. If this sometimes means that in our desire to make the church more intelligible and more beautiful, we must, as pilgrims do, falter in the way or differ as to the way, no one should conclude that our common faith is lost or our loving purpose blunted. The great Cardinal Newman wrote, once wrote, Lead kindly light amidst the encircling gloom. We believe that the kindly light will lead us to greater understanding of the ways of God and the love of men. That final paragraph says it is our duty to break from the Pope on issues of morality that go back all the way to the beginning of the church. Think about that and then think about the times in the history of the church, recent history of the church, Priests and bishops have been suppressed, excommunicated, hammered by Rome in various ways, or upholding Catholic orthodoxy. One Catholic writer described the effect of the Winnipeg Statement at this point in Canada when various Catholic social services institutions began to be decatholicized in a very interesting way. I'm taking a lot from their website here. You can find a link to the full article in my show notes today at returntotradition.org. I have a special one of those up for you this weekend. Until the 1960s, the vast majority of people employed by Catholic social service institutions were nuns, priests, monks, and in other words, religious. Combined with efforts to secularize those religious orders that had been going on at the same time in an almost weirdly coordinated way, and the catastrophic collapse of vocations going on among religious orders beginning in the 1960s after the Council, especially after the promulgation of the new Mass, these organizations began to secularize and use the Winnipeg Statement to not only accept but actively promote 
the use of artificial barriers to following God's great command. They, this began the decatholicization of Canada. It's a kind of a hard thing to understand, but it turned the country into what we see today, a very passive place, secular, and one that actively imposes evil on its own population as an example for the rest of the world to follow. How many times in 2020 and after did we hear some of the most wicked people in the Western world say we need to be more like Canada and how they handle that whole mess? It's really jarring. But the Winnipeg led to what sociologists in Canada have termed a civilizational crisis, where the country is on the verge of collapse. In terms of its long-term population viability, the collapse of the number of Catholics caused by this, because they simply aren't being born anymore, has led to a catastrophic shrinking of the church in that country, with in some places 75% of parishes closing. This has also led to the further secularization of society. With wicked laws passed, if I cited them explicitly, you'd probably yawn in response since America has them as well. Laws regarding impurity and substances and the rest that no Christian society would ever endorse. But the Winnipeg Statement is to blame in Canada. At basically the same time in the U.S., the priests were organizing to destroy Catholic universities and separately to give Catholic politicians a way out of obeying the church's teaching on the Moloch topic and on the issue of following money vitae. But that's another topic for another time. I'll revisit this topic to cover what they did to Catholic universities so you can know why and how Gonzaga and Notre Dame and almost any other Catholic university you can name are in fact not Catholic. But that was the Winnipeg Statement, which is still in force. The Canadian bishops wouldn't dare rescind it, short of something apocalyptic happening that would force them to wake up. But I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure that that's not surprising to you. But I am curious what you think about this and the statement itself. I'll have the statement linked in my show notes at returntotradition.org. That's the name of this podcast with a .org at the end. Look for the post of the episode title and you'll see things there. And it's a special weekend show notes because I don't usually post what I do on the weekends on there because it's mostly reading historical documents and the like. As well as not only the Winnipeg statement will be there, but as will also be the thing that I referenced here for the brief history of Canada for context. For at that time. Um, I'm curious what you think about this in the statement itself. So I'll, again, I'll have the statements linked in the show notes today, and I would like to know what you have to think about it. So like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. And let me know in the comments what you think about all this. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.